0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us life. We thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you here in spirit and in truth. We thank you for how our hearts have been lifted as we've worshipped you in song just now. And uh, Lord, we bless you for that privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our theme today is how uh, our wavering faith can be refocused in worship. And the only reason why we want our faith to be refocused in worship is so that we can go out uh, from here and live confidently with Christ. I'm going to ask if we could put the words of the reading up. I will be going through them in a little bit while I just have it from the beginning of it. And uh, earlier this week, um, I was very privileged to be on a conference that I helped to uh, facilitate, the Partnership for World Mission Conference. And uh, this year we had a focus on the church in Pakistan, and particularly thinking about the persecuted church. And uh, Bishop Irfan uh, stood up and shared something of the experiences of the life of the church over the last uh, decade or so in Pakistan. And I think probably there wasn't one person there who was not moved and feeling close to tears as they heard the deprivations and the persecution that the people in the church have had to go through in pakistan he just reeled off list after list of violence attack on christians uh, the worst being the uh, bombing in peshawar when so many hundreds of people were were killed or or injured and how uh, the Christians there live a life which is uh, absolutely um, marginalized, where they have no opportunities in their work and others, and where they are victimized by the people around them, and they can't get the jobs that they want, all because they believe in Jesus Christ, and that doesn't fit the, the official religion of Pakistan, which is growing stronger. And somebody asked him, uh, Bishop, what do we in the church here, what can we best do to support you? And I was very struck by his reply. I was expecting, you know, pray for us, send stuff for us. And he said, the one thing that we in the persecuted church need more than anything else from you in the West is that you be the church of Christ where you are. That you live as faithful Christians in your society where you are free. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, when you're persecuted and you're dying for your faith and then you look to your brothers and sisters who live in freedom, you want to see them sharing that faith and walking with you. Because if they're not doing that, if they're being lukewarm as it was for the church of Laodicea, although we're not looking at that one, it really makes you question and struggle. And the church is who Jesus is speaking to, not just individuals. He's talking to the church, saying to all of us, obviously, through the words to the church here in Ephesus. And we're thinking about this kind of how worship sustains us and uh, how we come to that. And I found these uh, words written by a Pakistani pastor who describes how the tradition of singing the Psalms has really helped persecuted Christians in Pakistan to keep their faith. He said this: he said, Christian people in Pakistan are largely illiterate and poor, disadvantaged and marginalized. We have no political power and thus no ability to bring out change. Planted in this hard place, our only hope is in God Himself. And he went on to say as that after he and his family were attacked twice in both 2009 and 2010, how he found comfort in reading Psalm 18. I just wanted to read that first verse to you. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 18, he went on, is the most popular psalm in Pakistan. It represents God's providence, his safety, his power, his deliverance and kindness. And in the context of our living below the poverty line and facing discrimination and hard challenges every day, it gives hope and encouragement. And it's very interesting. He goes on as he's talking about it on the site that I was looking at to say that Uh, The missionaries, when they came to Pakistan, they didn't have much effect. But when the church in Pakistan started singing the psalms in their own language, it marked an explosion in growth in the life of the church. The worshipping in the community, the words of God expressed in song were for them that explosion, the trigger for an explosion in faith and life and growth in the church. Now, the book of Revelation is part of what's known as the apocalyptic tradition. In fact, Revelation is a translation of Apocalypse. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, Apocalypse was all about kind of that film Apocalypse Now. Uh, You're really showing your age if you know that one. Sorry. Uh, But actually, it's this image of the Apocalypse Now of the Americans coming in, just blowing everything up, and uh, heroes in the midst of it, and this kind of terrible, terrible apocalypse of judgment that's terrifying. But actually, Apocalypse, the Greek, means uh, the kind of unveiling of things that are hidden. The making tangible, or the making audible, or the making understandable and visible the things that are otherwise invisible and unseen and unknowable. 1 John 1 begins by saying, We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard, and what we have touched. They're telling the story of Jesus. We have seen this. Things that have been hidden, but now are revealed. And so Apocalypse, the revelation, is that it's about the revealing of God and His will for His people in order that they can be strengthened. And apocalyptic literature often comes out of a time of persecution and struggle. And so the people that are being written to in Ephesus are people who are going through times of struggle. And when we think about Apocalypse, we often think about something about the end times, but actually the people hearing this would have thought, not about the end times, but about now. That they were being a given a vision into the reality in heaven now. So they could see their personal suffering now and experience what they're going through, but also they're given a glimpse that God is still in heaven, that Christ Jesus is still in control, and that they can trust him. And so let's look at these words which are coming through here. to so the angel in the church of Ephesus, writing to the whole body of Christ. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we know that the lampstands and the, and, the, and the stars represent the churches, the seven churches that Jesus is speaking to. And that on the one hand, Jesus is holding the stars. He's sustaining the churches. He is their rock and their foundation, their fortress, as we read in Psalm 18. Psalm 18. But we also see that Jesus is also walking amongst the lampstands. So Christ Jesus is in their midst. And so the people are invited to see that Jesus is both there sustaining and holding the church, but he's also here with us. He's enduring with us. He's walking with us, not only as we worship, but as we go out into the world and face the struggles that are going on. God with us. And in the worship We are able to reach out. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had that point in worship when it seems as though just for a moment heaven is stripped away, the barrier is stripped away, and you feel like you're in heaven and you're in the presence of God. And kind of that remains with you when you walk out and you go through your days. Revelation is this act of unveiling, of seeing what is there. And so Jesus, as he speaks to these people who've come with persecution in their hearts and minds, he speaks to them words of encouragement. He says, I know your deeds. Interestingly, at, uh, uh, at 9.15, the person who read it, read it with real emphasis. And, and it felt a little bit as though it was kind of um, a rebuke. But actually, these first words are not a rebuke. He's saying, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. And boy, some of you worked hard yesterday. Sorry I wasn't with you. Uh, I was on another one. But actually, just we know that moving into this place has been hard work for a lot of people. And if Jesus were here, he'd be saying, I know your hard work. I know how you've worked so hard for your, this church and for things. I know your perseverance, the fact that you have, haven't given up. And imagine for that church which is going through persecution and struggle, Jesus is saying, I'm, I can see you. I know what you're going through, and I appreciate it. You know, when we go through struggles and difficulties for our faith, or things are tough and hard, Jesus is saying, the one who's the saint, he's saying, I know what you're going through. I understand, and I love it when you don't give up. I'm with you in those places where you persevere. And he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, uh, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but you're not God. He's commending them. And actually, he's commending them here in in a way that is a bit of a challenge to our society. Because he says, I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. Now, that's kind of a bit hard in our society, isn't it? Because tolerance is probably the virtue in our society. And yet, here is Jesus commending a church for not tolerating. And I started thinking about that. And and the word behind it is a Greek word, bastasai. Which means sometimes it means to carry or to bear with or to just, to, you know, to bear a heavy burden, something that you can only just bear. So Jesus passed aside the cross, he carried the cross, it was an enormous burden. And uh, when we have to bear with the struggles and the evil, it's, it's almost something like, I can't bear it. So uh, the word, this kind of concept of tolerance is not actually a good word. Tolerance says that I tolerate what you're doing. I like it. Oh, it's horrible, but I'll tolerate it. Do you know what I mean? But the Bible tells us not to tolerate things, but to love people and to love our enemies. It's so much more positive and so much more powerful. That's a bit of a side thing, really. But when you hear these words tolerance and tolerate, I'm not sure that they're really Christian virtues. And so Jesus goes on to say, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> no, I'm <just> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, and you've persevered and you've endured hardships my name and you have not grown weary. You haven't given up. And he goes on at the bottom, he says, and you have this too in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And that's, again, that expands that thing really on these evil practices. Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, so far as we can tell, they were people and members of the church who had uh, decided that they wanted to, uh, uh, to bring some of the practices of the culture around and enshrine them in the center of the church. And you have to understand a bit about Ephesus in order to understand what was going on. Ephesus was a big city. I was reminded this morning that it was uh, when they built the amphitheater for 24,000 people. I think that's bigger than our arena is going to be in Bristol. Uh, And they had this amphitheater that could seat 24,000. That was only one in 10 of the population. So, Ephesus itself as a city was a quarter of a million people. It's huge. And uh, it was seated on a trade route around the Mediterranean. Uh, a direct sort of shipping line from Athens, the center of kind of philosophy and so on. And people would come there and then it would go on to Jerusalem around the Mediterranean, up into the Black Sea, and then overland into Asia. This was a big and important port. And it had a temple, the Temple of Artemis, and uh, it was reputed to have over a thousand cultic prostitutes. And uh, using those prostitutes was very much a part of the kind of worship and the, the, of the the fertility god of Diana. It was a place full of sexual immorality. And if you read through uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's telling the Christians that they must not have even a hint of sexual immorality or crude jokes or obscenity amongst them. And it's kind of making them stand out from what's going on. And we know, too, from Acts 19 and 20 that uh, when Paul came and was preaching, he was preaching this message. uh, As the Christians were growing in numbers, Demetrius, who was one of the silversmiths, he not only got all the silversmiths together, he got all the craftsmen related to temple and said, we've got to get rid of these Christians. And they had a massive riot because they were making this change to what was going on. And so... The Nicolaitans, it seems to be, were people who were saying, actually, kind of all this stuff that goes on, we, you know, as Christians, it's Christians, all right, we can take part in those um, things that are going on in the temple. Uh, it kind of helps our business, and uh, we, we, we can eat the food that is offered to idols and stuff, which the Christians were not doing. It's all right, we can bring it in. Actually, it's probably quite good. And Jesus commends the church for recognizing that these are false teachings, that actually we are called to be set apart and to be holy and not to give up, not to weary with what's going on and that the Ephesians have kept faithful and the church is holding to what is true. And it must have been very hard. And we've seen it in the the persecuted church that when we uh, choose to stand up for what God is teaching us, very often it leads to real opposition and pain. So here is a church that's gone through persecution, that's whole faith, all those things. And yet, Jesus says to them, I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. And the word there is agape, uh, which is the Greek word about love, uh, which is the kind of all-encompassing word. And so some of the commentators think that uh, as uh, Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the love that they have for each other, the agape love that we share. You know, the agape meal? where we share bread and wine together and, and, and represent our love for each other. And so maybe uh, what's going on is Jesus is saying, you stop being church. When you first, if you remember in Acts, when the first Christians came to Christ, they had everything in common. And they, they sorted out their issues and they worshipped together. But maybe as time had gone on, they kind of lost track of that openness and that generosity. Ooh, openness and graciousness and general. Oh, so we're coming back to that living life to the full, and maybe they'd started closing their doors to each other. I don't know. But perhaps their love was not quite it was what it was for each other. Or others think that it's the agape love for Christ, that they had lost that first zeal for God uh, when they first fell in love with him. Now, actually, I, kind of, I hope it's a, a mixture of all of that, really, because I do know that when you first fall in love with somebody, you, all you can think about is them. And actually, when do you know, have you ever had? I was going to say teenagers, but anybody really—it doesn't matter who you are. When somebody falls in love, they can be a right pain in the butt. Am I allowed to say that in church? I don't know. Because actually, we can't live in that kind of thing. Love becomes something which is a deep, deep force within us, like a compass bearing that is set. We're set in our lives for love before God. And I think what's going on is—it's not just about having, losing that initial zeal. It's perhaps that they may have, as they've gone through life and as things are going on around them and the pressures of work and to compromise and to, to for all that kind of stuff, uh, perhaps they've just lost their bearings a bit. They're no longer quite as fixed on God as they were, that their love has gone a little bit lost. And Jesus says, repent, turn back from those things and come back to what you first you first did, where, where your love for God for me and for one another, was the the, comfort, the thing that was setting you forward and guiding you and leading you. Because otherwise, he says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, remember, he's talking there to a church. So he's not talking to individuals. He's not saying to the individuals, you're going to lose your salvation anything like that, or this is judgment of God. He's saying that if you lose that love, for me, if you lose that bearing, then the life is gone. The light will go out and the lampstand will be removed because there won't be anything for it to hold any longer. And just think for a moment in our cities, St. Werberg's was a place where the light was, a lampstand. Now it's a climbing center. Down in Easton, the church there, I think it was St. Matthew's, on St. Matthew's Road, is now apartment blocks. Somehow, as a church, we've let the lights go out. And then the lampstands are removed, and only what's left is a shell of what was there. And there is this kind of warning to us. Don't let the light go out. And our worship together can be a place where the light is kept open. We've experienced something of that together. It's a place where we're reminded of the truth to sustain us. Like those Pakistani sing- Christians singing Psalm 18 to each other and writing the truth of God on their hearts. And worship and faith are closely tied together. There's a truism, a, a saying in, in, that uh, I've heard banded around, that as we worship, so we believe. And then as we believe, so we live. And that's why liturgy is really important. That the liturgy we have and the songs that we sing actually express the truths that we believe. Because as we worship, so we believe and so we live. That's why the Church of England, for all its business, something you want to make a change in liturgy, it takes about 10 years. But that's because if we get it wrong, we're going to be teaching people things that are not of God, as we worship, so we believe. And Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul says, whatever is... Let me just uh, turn to that for you and read it out to you. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And Paul is saying that where you fix your mind and your heart and your worship, that is how we will be shaped. Because if we keep looking at those things that are honorable, true, and good, we will become honorable and true and good like them. Because we're filling ourselves with those good things. If we look at other things that are damaging and and vile and horrible, they're going to leave a taint on us and shape us in our way. It's one of those great hidden tragedies, although not so hidden now in our society, uh, that so many people are recognizing that this culture of pornography is shaping people's minds and thinking so that they can no longer have normal relationships, that they can't relate to each other in ways that are normal, they have to have kind of extremes, quite apart from the damage that is done to those caught up in that exploitation and slavery to promote the images. And it's as we worship that our minds are refocused that we fix our eyes on God. And the antidote to the hidden things is to come into the presence of God where he can reveal those hidden truths about our lives, where we can set our hearts and minds on the things that are holy and are good. That's why we're urged in the Bible not to give up worshipping, as some are wont to do. You know, it's very easy in today's day and age when we say so busy, Uh, And we have a diary, if you, uh, you know these diaries? I hate them, the electronic diaries. You look down there and you can see that every hour of every day is, is fixed up for something. And it's so tempting not to make space or time. Somebody's got to give. But actually it's when we come to worship. And worshiping together, not just on our own, that God speaks often most clearly. He speaks through the music and the songs, through the word of God, and restores us. And I want to leave you with my own personal thing, but it's not just about me. I want to be very clear about that. When we come here here together, yes, God will speak to us as individuals, but he speaks to us as a church. He builds us all up. He builds us in our sense of each other. And he gives us that sense of belonging. And we can do this because we're in it together. And God is with us. And whatever happens and whatever the world throws at us, we can overcome because these are the truths that God is giving us. And so for me, and I want to share with you honestly, well, those of you who know me, I, try to, I want to do that because actually it's only when we're real that we can do that. In about 2006, and Lisa will tell you I'm terrible on dates and names, so I think it was 2006, we went through a really, really difficult time as a family. Uh, I was going through struggles with a colleague at work, but alongside it, uh, my father was very ill with cancer, and he died early in the year and a few months later Anita's mother also passed away of cancer and two weeks later uh, we lost a niece and I had to do the funeral and something about that whole period of time where there was so much pain and loss and grieving and all the struggles that were going on in the thing I found myself as I'm sure Anita was as well but in a place uh, where I didn't know whether I could carry on. I felt very lost and, uh, and, and struggling. And I remember sitting in St. John's Church because I was on study leave. I'd been given compassionate study leave by the diocese because of the things that had been going on. And uh, I sat in St. John's Church in Tunbridge Wells, and there was uh, words being preached and, and, and worshipped. And, and then they announced a song, and I sat there in utter Tears, but also feeling the healing balm of Christ flood through me, and realised that I could go on. And the song that they sang was based on that Psalm eighteen, God is my uh, my rock in times of trouble, but also on Hebrews six, a sense of God as our anchor. And they sang, faithful one, so unchanging, ageless one, you are my rock of peace. Lord of all, I depend on you and I call out to you again and again. You are my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. And I sat there in the midst of all that and I wept for sorrow and grief, but also for joy, because as the people of God sang, I knew that God was there in his heaven and that all was well and that I could carry on through it. Worship, focusing our wavering faith. Let's welcome these wonderful kids. Come come in.